The following is a conversation with Dr. Emily Balchettis. Emily Balchettis is a professor of psychology at New York University. She is an expert in the field of motivation, goal setting, and tools for successful goal completion. She is also the author of the book, Clearer, Closer, Better, How Successful People See the World. Basically, the gist of the book is that how we visualize a problem or a goal in our mind has everything to do with how we approach this goal and how successful we are at pursuing it. And when I say visualize, I mean literally the image that we have in our mind. It was a wonderful conversation, and among other things, we discussed specific techniques or tools that can help you pursuing your goal more efficiently and the impact of cultural differences in our theory. Hi, and welcome to my channel. My name is Dr. Roy Yozovich. In this channel, I converse and speak with the most interesting and influential people from all around the world discussing science, philosophy, psychology, artificial intelligence, and more. If you find this conversation interesting, please consider subscribing, hit the bell button, and be part of this great community. And now, without further ado, Dr. Emily Balchettis. Dr. Emily Balchettis, thank you so much for coming today. How are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's start. We have so much to talk about and your work is so inspiring. And I want to start with uh, this, okay? In a recent TEDx lecture, you say, and I quote, for 20 years, I've asked and answered the same question over and over again. Why don't we all see the same thing the same way? And this was a brilliant uh, TED uh, talk. Now, one can take the philosophical approach and say that our vision is an active process and we create rather than interpret reality. It's like Immanuel Kant began this process, but some of David Eagleman's works lie in this realm. But we can also take the Richard Nisbet approach that different cultures will focus on different things. Now, from what I understand from your book, your approach is that our goals affect our vision system. We see things according to our goals. If you need to put your theory between Immanuel Kant and Richard Nisbet, where do you put it? Um, like a Venn diagram, <laughs> pulling from those <laughs> scholars, right? I mean, that's that's that I think that's the best that's the best approach um is not to put yourself into to one camp but to pull from the expertise of these people that have come before us um and I you know I think uh Richard Nisbet was very focused on culture uh and I think culture plays a similar role as to what I'm talking about but but um, we can expand the idea of culture uh, and think about well what does culture reflect that reflects a lifetime of lived experiences active thoughts goals priorities how we want to engage with each, with each other how we are pressured through social norms or social ecologies to engage with each other like that all is what culture is and means so culture isn't just you're from Israel and I'm from the United States or what Westerners versus Easterners, right? Like that's, that's not culture. Nobody would say that that's how you should distill culture. And so when you expand our thinking about what culture is, I think it opens you up to a whole host of other possibilities that well align with what I'm talking about. Okay. But it, uh, I want, you know, let me take it the other approach because uh, the philosophical approach of Immanuel Kant say that again, seeing or interpreting the reality, we, we don't just absorb the reality, we create the reality. And mm -hmm. you, you can take the philosophy of Immanuel Kant and say, listen, it's like my, the goals that I saw on YouTube say that you choose, if you choose to be happy, if you choose to see the reality in a, in a pink glasses, everything will be pink. So some of this is like the uh, motivation goal, but some of this it really is. We actually create reality. That's true. And uh, that, yeah, that's true. We do take in the world. We absorb the world that is out there, except that what we absorb um, is degraded in the same way that, you know, like closed circuit television cameras or security footage, you know, to store all that data, it has to down process, you know, it removes what it believes to be redundant bits, 
um, to store what it believes to be just the most central or diagnostic features. Our brain, in a sense, does that too. If you think about the world that's out there, as we scan the world around us, there is far more sensation than our brains can handle at any one point in time. And so we selectively choose. What do we give priority to? What do we encode with specificity and with precision? And what do we consider to be redundant information or less central or less important right now? And so as a result, though we are absorbing reality the way that it is, we're doing so with deficiencies. And yet we still have to fill in those gaps because sometimes what we haven't taken in with precision becomes actually the most important sort of input for making our next decision. And so we have to put together those puzzle pieces that maybe we weren't even given in the first place. You know, I was trained as a magician and what magicians do basically, what magicians do basically is, you know, focus your attention to one thing and let you forget the most important thing. Now, you said we selectively choose, and you're absolutely right, which leads to, I think, another very important question. Do we also consciously choose? Because I think the the idea of whether we are conscious, consciously choosing or not is is vital to the theory. I love magicians. We work with magicians too. We we study attention, the importance of attention. And every time that I get to engage with or go to a magician show, I fall for it every time. I love it because because you can study this stuff, and yet just like a doctor is not a medical doctor is not immune to getting a common cold. You know, somebody who studies the visual experience is not immune to all these things that make life so fun the way that a magician can make life so fun. You know, I I I use I I'm sorry again I'm interrupting, but I'm sorry, I must say something. Yeah, you know, please. I used to give the example of, you know, a professor of cognitive psychology and a professional pickpocket. Okay. Who mm-hmm. understands better cognitive psychology? One can mm-hmm. argue that the professor, but I would argue that in some cases, in some ways, the professional pickpocket has much more to lose. Hence, he understands much better the essence of cognitive psychology. I once had my wallet stolen by a professional pickpocketer while I was at a coffee shop. I had a lot to lose because I had just gone to the bank to fund my research lab. I literally lost far more than that person stood to lose by not being successful. And so, yes, case in point that, though, you know, having the intellectual versus the street smarts are just two different forms of intelligence. Okay, so again... Yeah. So your question is, can we consciously choose? The answer is yes. I am consciously choosing to look directly into my camera right now. I am consciously choosing to look out my office window down Broadway in New York City. Of course, we can consciously choose what we are visually experiencing. There's, but there's a more interesting question, which is, can can we do that without sort of the effortfulness that this example just gave? Do we can we choose in some other sense that isn't uh, so perfunctory or or as obvious? And the and the answer to that is yes. And sometimes we're aware of it, and sometimes we're not. So you know, making that distinction between consciousness, unconsciousness, non-consciousness, another word to throw in there that social cognition researchers like to use. We can talk about those words for sure, but maybe the more important distinction is about awareness versus lack of awareness. So yes, I am consciously choosing and fully aware that I'm looking forward or I'm looking to the right, but I can also still be conscious, not unconscious, like asleep or in some sort of like fugue state of, um, you know, choosing to focus on my conversation with you rather than the noise that's going on in the hallway. Right. And so that's not like an unconsciousness, the way that some people might use that term, but but it's still reflecting some sort of choice that I'm making to prioritize the input that I'm getting this way rather than in the input that's coming from that way. I think you know the the distinction between consciously or conscious and awareness is again very important because if I can alter my vision according to my goals and this is where I'm heading to okay I can I can pursue my goals more effectively which leads mm-hmm. again so let we with your permission I want to go step uh, a little bit backwards 
and ask you this following question. In your book, uh, Clearer, Closer, Better, you delve into the relationship again between visual perception, motivation, and achieving your goals, which this is why we're here. <laughs> Now, you <laughs> mentioned how altering our visual focus can impact our perception of goals and challenges, suggesting that our visual perspective can either energize or demotivate us. So before I delve into many questions that I have on this theory, can you please describe, you know, the most uh, important or significant findings of your research? Sure. And then if that doesn't resonate, we can go to some of the ones that are just the easiest to understand. But I think some of the most important ones were ones that we've been, that we were doing Um, with a goal that people care about, which is health and fitness. Beginning of a new year, we all, many of us set New Year's resolutions or, or feel a sense of go renewal. Go to the gym, go to the gym. Yeah, exactly, right? And from year to year to year, that's exactly it, right? To get in shape in some way. And usually for a lot of people that involves going to the gym or running more, getting more steps in. Um, and so this is a goal that really matters for people. And the majority of people have given up on their New Year's resolution by Valentine's Day, right? Six weeks in, people are just like, oh, forget it, <laughs> you know? And that's why when January 1st rolls around or some other sort of psychologically meaningful moment in time, we reset those goals. Okay, so we cared about health and fitness. One thing that we started by doing was talking with Olympic athletes, some of the world's fastest runners that happened to be training um, over in Brooklyn, you know, across the East River. These were, you know, the fastest guy out of Trinidad, the, you know, the person who had just won a gold medal at the last Olympic Games. They were all guys. That's who we had the chance to chat with. And I went in thinking, like, how are, how are they seeing their competition? How do they see how do they see the course that they're about to run? And I think they had like superpowers of perception that. You know, there's something about how they can focus on where they need to be. They have their eyes on the prize, like literally training their eyes on where they need to go, what the goal is, but somehow can can triangulate around them. Where's the competition? And I couldn't have been more wrong. They told me, nope, that's not what we do. We are just narrowly focused as if there's blinders, there's distraction, um, there's blinders up so that we are not tempted by the distractions around us. Um, that's what we do. And if we don't do it, that's what we should be doing. And as I delve into it more, you know, some of the most exciting um, female uh, marathon runners do the same thing. They say they've reported like I focus on a woman in pink shorts in front of me until I till I pass her and then I reset the next target. So as I'm describing that, you can probably and your listeners can probably imagine what is that like? What's that experience like of not paying attention to what's on the sides and as if have, shining a spotlight just on a target up ahead, being really narrowly focused? So we get it. But at least my intuition was wrong about what you should do to be a better runner. And so I thought, well, well can we teach people that? Can we teach just non-Olympic athletes that same strategy and just do anything for their ability to meet their goals? The answer is yes. As I described it to you, we described it to them. Uh, we worked with thousands of people who were walking or who were running, um, who are who are new to the activity or those who are quite accomplished at it. And what we found is that people who adopted that sort of um, narrowed focus of attention strategy rather than what came more naturally, which was a, a wide focus of attention as if that spotlight was more diffuse spread over a largest larger surface area what we found in a really controlled study was that people um, walked 23 faster and said it hurt 17 less despite the fact that this was in a tight controlled laboratory experiment meaning the distance was the same how challenging this activity was going to be we held constant it's just that their subjective experience of it changed it didn't hurt as much to do this activity and they did it more efficiently they moved 23 faster the interesting question is well like how how did that happen All of the incentives remained the same. There was nothing that was different about that. So how did they do it better and have a, a, an easier experience? And that's because we induced a visual illusion. That narrowed focus of attention produces the illusion of proximity. Whatever it is that you're focused on appears closer. It feels subjectively closer to you. When that happens, there's a whole host of cascading psychological effects. When something looks closer to you, our participants reported that it wouldn't be as challenging to get there. It wouldn't be as difficult to make it. They felt like they had the resources they need to do a good job. They felt a greater sense of what others have called self-efficacy. Albert Bandura talked about that concept. Higher self-efficacy. We induce the visual illusion of proximity. It creates self-efficacy, feelings of possibility, energization, and that's what helps them move faster. Now... 
and it didn't hurt as much because they out, had time out, time out. Just yeah. a second. <laughs> so much knowledge. <laughs> Let me digest. Okay. So yeah. we might, <laughs> wow. We, we might've thought that a, a marathon Olympic runner would focus on the gold medal or the money, but, mm-hmm. but I don't know whether we focus on the gold medal or the, or the money off course when he's on course he just focus he has a very narrow focus on the next goal of the next task of the next achievement that he needs to do and the female marathon runner said okay I, this is a, a pink uh, shorts or, or, or the pink lady that this is the my entire focus is in this lady it's like the miali chicks is miali flow thing I, I'm not in nothing just in this lady okay this is basically what they are doing now it doesn't explain why do you want marathon in in the first place okay why do you you know wake up in 5 a.m in the morning where it's very cold outside and go run it, it, it the idea of the narrow focus in my perspective doesn't explain the broader things thing or the broader sets of things that you need to do. It's just explain how do you operate in the course. Am I right? Yep, you're right. Because there are different stages of goal pursuit. There is setting the goal. There's initiating the goal. There is enacting the goal relevant actions. There's disengagement, assessing whether this is the right goal to continue to pursue or whether throwing in the towel is the right course of action to actually get where you want to go. And then there's re-engagement with a new goal once you've met it, right? So when we're thinking about how do we pursue our goals, there are many stages and there is no one solution that's going to help you master every single one of those very distinct, very different stages. So when you are in it, this is a strategy that's effective. And knowing the psychology and the, the social cognition of how this happens gives us power and gives us insight that we can then take advantage of and maybe do something differently with our eyes to help us push harder and push farther than we would otherwise. And if I want to, to, to transform the get in shape uh, idea mm-hmm. into writing a research paper. So the next focus is I just need to go to get to the next paragraph. This mm-hmm. is, you know, the, the, the analogy. Could you give me some other analogies from different realms? So in this context, what we're talking about is what your eyes are doing. So the eyes are relevant. Do I think the strategy works on a treadmill? Like you should just focus on some, you know, like photograph on a wall in front of you when you're on a treadmill? Absolutely not. Treadmills are boring. Nobody likes running on treadmills. (laughs) Like they would like, well, that's not true. Some people do. They have their time and place, but they're hard. And that strategy isn't going to work because you're not in a dynamic environment. We're getting rid of those distractions, creating an illusion of proximity to the goal through this visual experience is going to be helpful. So it's what we're talking about here is building out your toolkit, your toolbox. Just like a carpenter can't use a hammer and build a house, can't use only a hammer to build a house, you need multiple tools. That is true here with goal pursuit. So when visual experience is relevant, when you're in an overly taxing um, visual space, this strategy works. Caveat, little asterisk, it works better when we're nearing the end of the goal, when we're sort of getting more and more depleted and we need to push harder through some of the most challenging stages, this works then. If you were to run a marathon and use this strategy for 26.2 miles, starting from the beginning, not going to work. It's going to be depleting. It's tiring to do that. So some of the most accomplished runners, actually, and those that run at a faster pace in in the studies that we've done, transition from using a more wider focus of attention to really narrowing in as the course progresses. It's about the last 10 kilometers. Uh, Yeah, Uh, we studied it often with people who are running 5k races. So from two and a half to five, you know, at the at that halfway point, they make they make a more substantial transition. Um, So that's an example here of like knowing what tools are available and when and how to use them and being flexible in that approach. So what you put on the table is you're writing a long term paper. What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to focus on? Well, is distance, is a visual experience relevant there? There are ways that visual experience is relevant, but it's maybe not the same thing. Like like just focusing on the due date on your calendar may not be the visual experience that's most relevant there. Um, But there is an analogy because just like physical distance is a form of distance, temporal distance 
is a form of psychological distance. But I need and to so see something. I need to see, Emily, you told me you need to see, mm -hmm. you know, the visual perception. Mm -hmm. What do I need to see? The clock? Mm -hmm. There are things that we can do that like that do use vision. It's not to say vision is the only tool or that vision is even the most important tool. It's one that we don't usually realize is a sort of superpower that we have at our disposal to do different things with to help us through those challenges. But what can we do? One thing that we can do is set ourselves up for success, create a visual environment, create a visual space that's conducive to, to fostering activity within that domain. Okay, so when you sit down to write your term paper, right? Turn off all of your notifications, put focus on, don't like make sure that your computer, I don't have, I don't have Facebook or Instagram or any social media as an instant login on my computer. Because when I'm at my computer, that is primarily for me to do work, not for me to do fun stuff. Although oftentimes work and fun go together. So that's one way that I have reduced the, the ergonomics. I've made it more challenging for me to do the distracting thing that would take me away from what I need to be focusing on. And you can think about what your, what your office space, what your desk space looks like. Do you tend to write your term paper if you're a student while sitting in your bed, leaning up against your pillows? Yeah, that probably won't be the best solution for you. It's going to make sleep not as and not as effective, and it's going to make writing a term paper not as effective because you conflated those visual uh, spaces. I must ask you. I I, I had a conversation uh, two months ago with Tim Pichel. He holds a procrastination puzzle. He's like an expert of procrastination, and some of the things that he told me about you know procrastination and getting things done, and I also wrote a book about this subject, what you're saying right now are absolutely true facts that are very helpful, but I don't need the idea of visual perception in, you know, in how to achieve or how to write more efficiently my research paper or my final term paper. I want, you know, to focus how does your theory manifest itself in other domain, because what you say, your running marathon example was an, an incredible example, okay? You have a narrow focused, again, a narrow visual focus of attention, and this narrow vision, narrow focus leads you to the winning. And my question is, again, in the domain of visual focus, in seeing, okay, the visual perception, how does it manifest into other domains? What you see predicts what you do and the actions that you take. That's a principle called automaticity, that perception is directly connected to action. So when you create visual environments that you're trying to work in, if you are a student, that cue other behaviors, like seeing a pillow cues sleep. Writing your term paper in your bed is a bad idea because seeing that visual, that pillow, that stuffy, that warm, cozy blanket, your slippers at the edge of your bed, those are all visual cues that are tied to an action that is other than writing your term paper. So that's one way that that example directly implicates vision because vis vision is directly connected to action. When it comes to other goals that we have, uh, um, oftentimes the challenging one, the most challenging are one ones are ones where we have to make a sacrifice today and withhold succumbing to temptations for something that's gonna benefit us in the far off future. It's implicating temporal distance. The problem is that that can be challenging, like saving for retirement today is very challenging because the person, the person, the future me who's going to reap those results just seems so distant. They've that time perspective just makes them feel irrelevant. That future self is irrelevant. So what can we do visually to contract that temporal space? This, a similar idea as to how we contracted the perception of physical space to improve people's efforts in the health domain. So we took an example from Hal Hirschfield at UCLA, his work about how do you how do you connect the current self with the future self to help people make better choices today that they want that'll better um, set them up for success in the future. I took a picture of each of my students' faces. They were all on the brink of graduating from college. They all had jobs to pay tuition and room and board um, and morphed it with that of a successful older person like Maya Angelou or Betty White and then showed them that video of showing themselves aging over time. It was horrifying for most of them. Like some of them couldn't breathe. They, were, they had their breath caught. They were so scared of seeing what they looked like with white hair and wrinkles. And then we had them visualize what a day in the life of that future self would look like. So not only did they see themselves, see the person that might um, 
might reap the benefits of their investment for their retirement years now, but then they also created a mental imagery of what uh, a you know a positive day and in, in that future self's life would be. So we directly connected that visual experience of seeing their aged self with the more cognitive thoughts, um, visualizations about what that future self would do with the money. And whereas 55 out of 60 people said, I don't do anything for retirement now, I don't save anything for retirement, understandable, but not a wise choice, economists tell us. Um, now the vast majority said, I'm going to start working towards saving for retirement after having that experience that connected their future and current temporal selves. Now, considering this, how about individuals with visual impairments, okay, okay, or those who heavily rely on other senses like hearing or touch or experience, you know, we, we have the, the NLP community introduced the idea of the visual, auditory, kinesthetic, okay, how can they adapt the principles of visual focus for goal setting and motivation? So what, is there any analogous me mechanism to the vision? Because we know that Aristotle once said that the eyes are the window to the soul. The visual cortex is the largest cortex. And maybe people who rely on hearing or experience the world uh, via hearing or other senses can't utilize your theory. Well, just to put it out there, I know that you know this, um, but others may not, which is if you lose your sense of vision or you never had it in the first place, that largest part of your cortex, the visual cortex, it doesn't die. It instead, it gets repurposed. That's called neuroplasticity, that different uh, senses um, and processes can can take over what would for other people um uh you know be the most um the most processed input in that particular area so it doesn't die it doesn't shrivel up it's not that it never develops if if you are born without sight it's that it can quickly learn to process input from something else there's really cool studies that are done like for example when you take people who are sighted and then bring them into a hospital setting where they can they can engage in the science in a safe way and put blindfolds on them with photoreceptive paper on the inside so that we know that when, they, um, when they're going about their day, they are not getting any visual input. There is no light coming in here and the photosensitive paper tells us that. And they do that for five days. They're living in the hospital for five days without sight, though they had been sighted before. And they have them learning Braille. By the end of the five days, they're not reading Shakespeare in Braille, but they can distinguish between certain letters of, of the alphabet. And every day they're getting um, their brain scanned in the fMRI machines to see like, how is their brain responding as they are, are reading Braille with their fingertips now, again, not with their eyes. And what you first see is of course, people are bad at Braille, they get better. And what you also see is that at first it's their, you know, the sensation of touch and sensory tactile information is processed in a particular area of the brain. But by the end of just five days, it's the visual cortex that is responding more to what is happening with their fingertips. So within five days of having no visual input, the brain has repurposed its visual cortex to be responsive to the input that's coming on their fingertips as if they are seeing with their fingertips. So um, I think that's just important to put out there, right? Is like our brain is amazing and it's quickly agile and it wants to use all of its computing power th that it has available. What do we know from that example also in direct answer to your question is um, that people have heightened sensory experiences in the other areas if they lose their sense of sight or um, or they or they didn't have it in the first place. And we adapt to find um, to find ways that we can that we can see with our other senses, see metaphorically with our other senses. Yeah, because some people say, you know, the the entire visual auditory kinesthetic doesn't really matter because I can say, okay, you visual, uh, visual the future you in 30 years with no pension. And I can say, okay, uh, uh, think about the future you in 30 years with no pension. And you can experience this, uh, this uh, thinking via hearing and maybe hearing versus seeing uh, doesn't play a big difference when you want, you mm -hmm. know, to, to connect the the current you and the future you together. 
Sure. And we can just take that same principle of automaticity that I mentioned before, that for most people, there is a direct connection between what you see and what you do, that there are visual cues that we can get that unconsciously without our awareness prompt certain actions in the same way that like we habitually, if you drive for your commute, there are certain landmarks that you don't have to think effortfully about uh, going and coming that you just know you turn right here, you turn left here because that visual has cued it. And, and you can be on the on a phone call, having conversation with somebody, listening to music, completely tuned out, thinking about your to-do list, and that visual will still prompt the right action. That's the principle of automaticity. But it doesn't have to be specific just to the visual experience, particularly if you aren't a sighted person, that there can be other things that still automatically you have learned to associate or habitually have associated that can automatically cue in action. So we can automatically see with our sense of smell or with our tactile experiences or with what we're hearing to cue certain actions in the same way that sighted people might have the experience with their, with their perception of sight. You know, according to some Jewish scholars in ancient Jewish tradition, since seeing and doing are very close, If some Jewish scholars say, if something is not allowed for you to do, don't see it. You're not allowed to see it. Mm -hmm. Because again, the connection between seeing and, and doing is, is tiny. And which leads me, I think, to the idea of mirror neurons, because I think this is basically, you know, in mirror neurons, we see and some of our motor neurons do. or imitate the concept of doing. So how does the theory of mirror neuron re reconcile with what we just talked about? I think you summarized it really well. That, that is, a, I think, a great example um, yeah, of, of what automaticity is neurologically, um, mirror neurons. So when we do something like throw a ball, Um, you know, we'll see a certain pattern of activation in the motor cortex and maybe the visual cortex if we're throwing to something in particular that we're looking at. But if we visualize that, I'm not throwing a ball right now, but I'm imagining the last time that I actually did throw a ball, you see a pretty similar pattern of activation in the brain. The way that we represent imagination, visualization shares a lot of similarities through those mirror neurons um, with our actual actions. And it can be us imagining something or us watching somebody else do it. And that's a way that maybe the concept of mirror becomes more uh, easy to understand. It's when, you, when you're just watching something happen on the outside, it shows up uh, in a similar pattern of brain activation is actually doing. Okay, well, This is so fascinating, just so fascinating. Now, you said uh, we started our conversation with a, a difference between, uh, with different culture or different cultures see the world in a different uh, sense or, or in a, a profoundly different way. Some cases, this, this is Americans versus Israeli, okay? Even, you know, the tone of voice. Why are you mad? I'm not mad, okay? <laughs> Something like that. And some, even, you know, Israeli and, uh, and um, Americans are part of the Western culture, but there is like the Eastern culture, which is profoundly different. As Nisbet says, that we see things in the object and the subject, the object and the background. I, I present a, a picture of a tiger in the wood and the Western will say, I will see, I see a tiger. And the Eastern will say, again, this is aggregate truth and it's not all Eastern are Eastern, not all Western are Western, et cetera, et cetera. But an Eastern will absorb the entire thing, not just the object. There is no just one main important object. And, mm -hmm. I, and, and it's not just culture, it's also a... environmental factors you know that that, that, uh, that can that can affect our goal setting so in your research how does or how do both the culture and the environmental factor you know can change or shape or, or how can we use different cultures or different uh, environmental factor to enhance our goal settings or goal mm -hmm. attainment? Yeah, so that's, um, you know, a, a concept called perceptual tuning, that what's important in our society is going to tune us to pick up on different kinds of perceptual information. So you did, you summarize really well, one of the most fundamental studies that, that Richard Nisbet has has done on the importance of culture. And just, you know, to, to, to give a little bit more about the specifics of the study, it was like, you know, they showed people a blue fish with yellow. 
yellow stripes in a fish tank that looked tropical. And then, and they showed people that and a number of other pictures. And then they said, is this the fish that you saw before? Blue fish, yellow stripes in the tropical fish tank, um, or a slight change that it wasn't so tropical, the fish tank, it was a bit more like a lake. And people who are from the United States or who are from more um, Western countries said, that's the same fish, blue fish, yellow stripes, same fish. People from more Eastern countries said, not the same fish. Yeah, blue and yellow stripes, but in an entirely different ecosystem. So no, that's not the same fish in a sense. That's, that's what was happening is that that context really mattered, that there were more errors in identifying, like, had you seen this before or not, depending on whether your culture um, lent you to appreciating or to integrating what the context was. And for people who are more, as the theory goes, more collectively oriented for whom their relationships with other people or within society is really central to being a good member of society, knowing your place, knowing what the norms are, knowing the expectations, um, that 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 sort of expands uh, not in a visual sense necessarily, but more cognitive sense. How how much do you need to take in? You can't just know the fish. You need to know the fish in the context. But to be a good member of society in a more Western culture, you can be more individualistic. The United States being among the most individualistic countries in the United States. You know, our, our military mottos are be all you can be, an army of one, you know, sort of pulling yourself out from the, the pack, um, being the, the valedictorian. The lonely ranger, the lonely ranger, the, you know, the, exactly. the lonely ranger. Yeah, so. Exactly, yeah. Right, so, so those are... So the goals are the same, right? The goal is to like, I want to be a good member of my society, but these societies have set us up with different value systems. And it's and it's and to be a great member of society, you should be in the United States or other individualistic countries. You should be uh, competitiveness is fostered because being the your personal best, being better than others, is what's valued, and that's not the case in in every country. So, I, um, yeah, I beg to differ. I I I, I really sorry. I I don't think you know. You present a very optimistic uh, uh, picture of reality. It's not that everyone wants to be a, a, a good member of society, but in case, just in the United States, you have to be very individual. No, in the United States, the goals are more individual, eg egocentric, uh, into the subject, into the self. And in other cultures, this is profoundly different, okay? Mm -hmm. So maybe the idea, you know, this is why you are in the United States and you write a book about gold or setting a goal, which some of them are very, I don't want to use the word selfish, but again, concentrated in the self, going to the gym, you know, uh, save money for retirement, et cetera, et cetera. It's not that my goal is to be the best member of community I can be. So maybe... There is a profound difference between Eastern or again, the the, the archetype of Eastern cultures with the American culture. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So whether you know, uh, um, so how did this come to be? Is it because it's just norms? Because the United States or other um, individualistic countries just have these norms where the goals are really personal? Um, or is it a value system? Or is it both? Like, how do you separate that? That we do have these suggest that we do value them. We, and live, we live 500 years after the Renaissance. And I, 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 I want to just remind our viewers, you know, Jared Diamond in his uh, Guns, Germs and Steels, uh, a masterpiece, said that, he went to Papua New Guinea and the guy in Papua New Guinea asked Jared Diamond, why do you Western have so much cargo? Why do, we, why do you have so much stuff? As part of the Western uh, society, of the Western civilization, we can't help it but be more happy, even for a short period of time, with more stuff. And this, you know, basic axiom of modern economics, you know, doesn't apply in Papua New Guinea. The entire uh, 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 American economy is based on the fact that when iPhone 15 is coming out and you have iPhone 14, you will be, mm, I wish I had the newer version. So yes, it's profoundly different. 
for for many reasons there are the opportunities we have a culture of abundance and we have resources to take advantage of the abundance and it's a misunderstanding of what brings happiness so there's no. you know affective forecasting differences as well we think buying that new iphone 15 is going to make us happy but spending that same amount of money on a trip would make us more happy in the end and we don't realize that in the moment and then there's social comparison on top of that because because your best friend just got the new iPhone 15 or your neighbor, your neighbor just got a new car. And now your car doesn't look so great in comparison. And you want to be able to one up them and look like you're you're living up to their same standard of living. I mean, there's many psychological reasons why we all want that iPhone 15 here. My theory is that people in Papua New Guinea will not understand your book. This is my this is my theory. So something sometimes, you know, the cultural difference are so so vast. Okay, I, I just you speak in a way. It's like you know. Uh, it's like that. I'm going to ask my grand my grandmother. Uh, do you f uh, do you feel you know fulfillment in your true self? And my grandmother, she will not understand what I'm talking about. Okay. Mm -hmm. Be these are general principles of goal setting, uh, and they do apply to multiple goals. And towards the end of the book that we are taught, you know, there are, especially with uh, the talk about disengagement, that's exactly about figuring out what brings happiness and knowing that we might have to throw in the towel here or that our goals are changing as we near the end of a major moment in our life, maybe nearing the end of our life, that it's all about like having to switch. We do switch to prioritizing our emotional goals that come from relational needs. And so how do we do that? How do we say, you know what? I have accomplished enough in my career right now. And what brings me happiness is not that anymore, but it's my relationships. And I'm going to disengage from one major personal goal to then prioritizing my place within a collective. That's really challenging for people to do. And it, it does mark, um, you know, a major point in our in our in our life. Uh, and there needs to be more research on that goal. Disengagement is a place where researchers are have focused some effort, but not in the same scale as they have on prioritizing which goal is going to win out right now or yes. are all of the other aspects of goal setting that we've talked about that precede the disengagement stage. Absolutely. But again, goal disengagement goal dis disengagement without sadness, you know, with mm -hmm. like Right. Yes, I think that this is the best course for me. I think, you know, that it will be better for me to eliminate, to let go of this goal in the in every mater mat materialistic culture and focus on something completely different. Yes. Right, and the problem often is... The problem often is that people consider that to be failure. They associate that with failure. Yes, you know? definitely. Yes, yeah. yes. And that's the problem is that we have that word that has such negative associations that giving up on something before it seems like it's done and, and what done means can all can be quite flexible and perpetually changing. And so you may never feel done, but then we decide that that's failure rather than taking a step back and recognizing that what our goal is, what our actual goal is, can be pursued through multiple mechanisms, through multiple means. And because I disengage from a goal on this trajectory doesn't mean that I'm a failure. It might mean that you're quite smart, in fact, for having recognized that this path has now played itself out and it's time to switch to a different path. And that might mean retiring or it might mean quitting your attempts at, at pursuing the next promotion and going and, and directing your efforts somewhere else. And it doesn't mean that you failed at your goal. It means that you have you have you have done a great job of reconciling the cost benefit reward cost structure there and realize that this isn't a good way to move forward. And it might be even you know that uh, that losing weight or being I, I I don't know what the I I count thing in kilograms yes but you don't a, a forty two years old woman with four mm -hmm. children doesn't need to fit into the metrics of an 18 years old model, okay? Mm -hmm. And it's not a failure. This is just different metrics. This right. is different message. I don't, it, I'm not playing in this game. I'm mm -hmm. going to play in a different game. And you know, going into a different game doesn't mean failure. Y you might say yes, but you failed in this particular game of how to, how to look like an, a, 18 years old model, but it's not an important game. Right. So then what do we do? Right. Because the, we ask ourselves, why? Why is it important that I look like an 18 year old model? Because I want I, I, I want I want attention. 
Oh, why do you want attention? Because I like social connections. Why do you like social connections? Because I have some of the most rewarding, meaningful experiences of my life when I connect with other people. Okay, that's the goal, maybe, if, maybe, right? To play that out. Why, why, why? And you get to this goal that's like, I want meaningful connections with other people that bring satisfaction to my life. Okay, when you're 40, 42, and you have four children, okay, and you're, and what do you want in your life? I want meaningful connections that bring that bring reward. You have the same goal, but the means that avail what's available to you to pursue that goal are different. And that's okay. It's the same goal pursued through different means. It's not it's not losing 20 pounds or 10 kilos. No, it's through spending quality time with your children and it's having it's having Friday night dinner together, right? And yes, and but, and it's the same it's know, different means to the same goal. But you know the the, the great logic that you just presented more often than not, doesn't influence or, you know, doesn't convince, right. you know, very smart, uh, uh, outspoken women. And, and again, I, I'm, I'm referring to women with regarding to weight loss, but again, you right. You can treat men in, in a different metric, okay? Many outspoken, very intelligent women fall for this metric, even though that your logic is flawless. Sometimes, right. you know, some of our goal settings, precisely in our culture, are irrational. Mm -hmm. Right. And why is that? For many reasons, but in part because we're bombarded with visuals that pull us down out of the higher level of construal down into the low level where we see what other people look like. We we consume social media that that presents a warped view of what's really out there and who's happiest in this world. So those visuals are telling us this should be the goal. So what do we need to do instead? We have to actively engage in like de-biasing and de-propagandizing our visual world. I had a chance to talk with a CEO of a major company who was really, um, you know, had 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 started multiple businesses, and he struggled with not the weight loss part of this, but but trying to de-bias himself to focus on what goals he had that are different than what his surroundings were telling him. And so, you know, he spent a lot of time thinking about that. Why am I doing this? Why am I sacrificing this? What is it that I'm working towards? And then he created for himself just a visual icon that reflected that of what his raison d'etre was, what his reason for being was. He created like his own monogram in a sense, and he would surreptitiously place it in all different locations within his life. It's in his car. I was on a Zoom call with him and he was in front of his own bookshelf and he was like, it's here too. And so then I was like, oh, where, where is it? And he said, and you won't know because this is a sign just for me. And when I see it, it is a perpetual reminder of what is it that I am working towards, which is different than what others are pushing me towards. And so that's how he was trying to, you know, sort of inoculate himself against other visual experiences that we're pushing him elsewhere. Again, what you see is what you do and you focus and, and, and if you surround yourself with things that you want to see, want mm -hmm. can like W-A-N-T, low want, mm -hmm. something that you want to see, uh, uh, chances are much higher that things will actually be done. There is a word, a word in your book, which I, can't, I just cannot pronounce and it goes like this. Floxinolifilipinization. Could you please help me pronounce this? No. <laughs> it's been a while since I've said it out loud and I'm not seeing it right now. Floxinoxinihilopilification. Okay, it's in you. the they, Zoom chat. Yeah, floxinoxinihilopilification. Yeah. Now, oh let me just get it straight. This is in your own book. So even if you can't say it, please explain what is the concept of fluoxetine supersession. Um yeah. So 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 first of all, I can't say it because I was writing it and I have read about it, but then when I did go to record the audiobook, I had to like we paused right before that and I had to say it about 25 times to get it into this like musical mm -hmm. rhythm for it to come out in the audiobook recording. So the idea it's um it's a it's it it's a word that's out there. It's very rare because it actually started as a made up word by um, students, you know, I think at Oxford in the past who who smooshed together different pieces of words to create a word that reflected a concept that they were talking about. It's the act, the action or a habit of estimating something as worthless. It's deciding that something um, 
is is just not worth your investment of time. Okay. And how does that and how does this world correlate to everything that we just uh, spoke about in the last hour? So the idea is that we just have, we set things or some goals as unimportant and therefore we steer away from those goals? Yeah. So in a sense, it comes down to like when we were talking about disengagement, deciding that this just isn't worth our time anymore. That's that's an example of uh, that effort or the mental effort that it would take to flock sinoxinihilipilificate something is is making the, the concerted effort to decide that this isn't a good investment in my time anymore or conceding that there are challenges that'll arise. Um, and these challenges are fine. If it means that we have to change course, that's okay. Um, but all of these things are challenging for us to wrap our mind around because of that sort of stigmatizing view of what failure is. Um, that we think if we change course, um, that if we aren't dogmatic and steadfast and digging in and, and gritty, that if we move to a different um, means to pursuing a goal or we pursue a different goal entirely, that it means that we're a failure. And there are different um, culturally created associations that go with that idea of change or giving up on something before you've um, finished it or, or completed it or, or, or met your goal. But it doesn't need to be that way. In fact, we learn more by taking those risks and not succeeding at things oftentimes than those Let things. Let me just that interrupt. Yeah. Let me just interrupt because many we see, I I am also uh, in academia and we see many mm -hmm. students who just, you know, sign in to a degree because their parents pushed them to and say, mm -hmm. why don't we, why don't you quit? You don't love your, uh, 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 your domain. Say, I was raised in a way that I never quit. I need to finish everything to the last point, okay? And right. the idea is that we see many students that say that, you know, they can take three years of their life and in a degree that they don't love, that they don't succeed in, just because they don't want the idea of failure. And, 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 and they're intimidated by the idea that how can I look at myself in the mirror if I failed in pursuing this degree? Right. And that comes as, comes back to the idea of culture here, too. I, I work in a university setting as well, like you, and I teach and advise students as well. And so many times I have these conversations with students that are in their second year. Often it's after they've taken organic chemistry and they failed for the second or the third time. And they come to me in psychology and just say, I have to become a doctor, but I can't pass this class. Do you do you like organic chemistry? It's challenging for you. No, I don't even like it. Do you want to be doing it? Do you want to get better? Do you want to like it? No, I don't. Then why are you doing this? Do you want to become a doctor? I don't even, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to. Then why are you doing it? Because my parents sacrificed so much for me to be here. And this is, this is fulfilling my parents' dream or some version of that conversation we have so much. So there we're pulling in culture. This is a goal that is really important to these students. They are coming asking for help because they are struggling. They don't have to talk to me to change their major, to drop out of organic chemistry. They don't have to. So why are they? Because they're in a conflict. They are, they want the mentorship and they're struggling here because they have, they have a goal, which is to fit into the family structure and to, um, and to respect their parents' wishes, the parents that they love and value and who did sacrifice so much for them. And, and that is a goal. And at the same time, it's not a goal that aligns with what is personally valuable to them. But it's not to say that that matters more, like finding a reconciliation between those two is really important. So how and do, again, I don't you know, don't say, okay, do do let go of what your parents did for you. You're not saying this at all. You're saying this is a very important goal. And again, the student is... Having this, uh, his parents' wish as his personal goal, and he's struggling, you know, to get over organic chemistry. The idea is to reconcile between things that outside your inner self and some things that are in your inner self. And let me tell you, many things, or more more often than not, our inner self just come from the TV. I want to be mm -hmm. an actor. So what? So maybe your inner self or you know, your inner voice that tells you that you want to be an actor is not such a unique voice after all. And in some cases, you do need to listen to your spouse or your parents or mm -hmm. your community, et cetera, et cetera. 
Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, in the past, I've said to those students, you only get one life. It's your life. You only get one life. Uh, but now that I've grown up, I realize, oh, that doesn't, that's a, that's a very Western individualistic American response to the student who's struggling like that. So, you know, I feel embarrassed about my past self having said that to any student. Um, so what are you saying uh, right now? <laughs> Good luck. That's what I'm saying. Good luck. Right. This is really superficial. Um, what I'm about to say is really superficial and it's not going to work in this context. But when I'm in, in, in choice points, um, when I've had to decide where am I going to go to graduate school or what I was lucky enough to have job options to entertain. And, and so those are big decisions. It's not the same thing as which does a collectivist or an individual's value system going to win out when you're deciding what you're going to design your career to be. That's, that's a very huge decision, but I would flip a coin, flip a coin. Okay. Heads. I'm going to this job tails. I'm going to this job. Did I let the coin decide? No, but I let, but in the moment I tell myself that and I just wait and, and assess my emotional reaction to it. When the heads tell me I'm going to this job, how did I feel? Excited or disappointed? And can that help me to get to um, help me introspect a bit more about what do I really want? Which value system, at least in this moment, am I prioritizing? And um, and which one is, is guiding, which one would better guide my happiness? So sometimes that works. <laughs> if you're struggling with figuring out what do you really want, let the let the coin tell you how you this feel, is not necessarily what to do. This is brilliant. You know, I tell many people who come to consult me that I say, I can't tell you what to do, but I can't help you to determine what you want to do. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the basic of, you know, flipping a coin, okay? Just mm -hmm. watch your intuition. But again, sometimes our intuition is so... Uh, uh, deployed or, or, or it, it is not pure. Mm -hmm. It is not pure. Okay. It, 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 it's not that your heart telling you to go to some or to meet a girl. It's another organ. It's not your heart. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we, uh, we confuse between our inner okay. self and other lower aspects of our inner self. And it's very hard to distinguish. Right. I mean, and another way that that shows up, too, is hindsight bias, that after we've made the decision and then we live with that decision and then we're disappointed. Sometimes we're disappointed by at least some aspect of it. And they're like, oh, God, you know, I made the wrong decision. Oh, this is I regret this. It's such a mistake. You know, and that I bet we can all resonate with that. But the challenge is that you made a decision. Um, based on the best information that you had available at the time. And the decision had to be made then. And now having lived with it, you have different information. So should you should you kick yourself over the fact that you know this now, but you didn't at the time when the decision had to be made and, and have those regrets or feel like a failure or have made the wrong decision, believe you've made the wrong decision and then suffer the consequences of those beliefs? No, no. If what you have learned since making the decision is what's informing your current affective experience, you can't you can't be mad at yourself for that. You did the best job you could with an incomplete set of information at the time, and you live with that. Kudos. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Emily Balchetti, thank you so much for this con conversation. It was uh, mind-blowing, inspiring, and eye-opening, you know, because it's visual perception. <laughs> I always ask my guests two final questions. One, could you name a book that you have read in the last, I don't know, five to ten years, beside your book, which is Clearer, Closer, just a second, I wrote it over there, uh, Clearer, Closer, Better. Uh, that is a great book. Uh, could you name another book that you read in the five to 10 years that, you know, change your perspective on life that you can just... Sure. So, I mean, there are so many great authors. One of them, um, anything that Adam Alter writes, including one of his most recent books, The Anatomy of a Breakthrough, that's great. If we're looking for how do you get unstuck when you need to expand the set of possibilities that you're under, that you're considering, how do you foster creativity and innovation? It's a great book. Katie Milkman, How to Change, another great book on how do you establish habits? How do you become aware of the habits that you have and take more control over, over creating the ones that you want to keep and getting rid of the ones that you don't? Those are those are two books that um, I always continue to find value in as I read and reread them. 
this is great and if you want just uh, uh, click the description uh, on the link in the description below and in the first comment and you i will uh, link you i will guide you into the, an amazon link where the books that emily suggested and my last question is since this entire podcast youtube channel was originated in you know productivity creativity and being more efficient especially in the world in the world of academia what is like your number one tip for being more productive and and you can you know you can take it to, to paper writing but but anything mm -hmm. that in the realm of academia oh, so many so many little tips one is you know this is used in academia and corporate every everywhere the one touch rule how do you manage your email you only touch it once so you don't go to your email uh, haphazardly look at it only when you're able to deal with it make a decision about what needs to happen with that email right now and it either goes to a waiting because you've dealt with it and somebody else needs to reply or you deal with it don't let it linger that's how you get so backed up and feel sunk all the time when it comes to writing a paper, it's so important to have the big idea first before you jump in. It can be really intimidating to see a blank page and feel completely overwhelmed about where do I even start. I just start with whatever I'm excited to write about. That might be something that's in the middle. It might be something that's at the end. It might be just an, an anecdote that I want to open the paper with. And I don't know what the rest is going to be, but I just write it. And then I've created this sort of like a bank or a box of puzzle pieces. And then I take a step back and think about what's the big picture. What's the social issue I'm trying to address here and create a very abstract, high-level, non-detailed explanation to connect whatever the pieces are to, to each other uh, and to the broader um to the broader goals so that I'm not, I don't ever I'm I'm never scared about a blank page because I just never feel like I'm in that space. So those are two suggestions. Great tips. Emily Balchettis, mm -hmm. thank you so much for your time. It was wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation.